New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Even in the most hectic day, each of us has a few experiences that are positive and that make us happy, however briefly. These are moments that make us feel good. It might be your first sip of morning tea or coffee, or having someone allow you to pull your car into traffic, or completing a task such as getting the groceries put away. Today we'll be exploring how acknowledging these fleeting moments can change your brain your neural network for the good with our guest, Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick Hansen is a neuropsychologist who writes and teaches extensively on personal growth and contemplative practice. He's the founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. He writes a weekly e-newsletter called Just One Thing that suggests a simple practice each week that inspires joy, more fulfilling relationships, and more peace of mind and heart. He's the author of Buddha's Brain, The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom, and the CD set Meditations to Change Your Brain, and is the author of Hardwiring Happiness, The New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence. Join us for the next hour as we explore tilting our brain toward the good with our guest, Dr. Rick Hansen. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Rick, welcome. It's great to be here, Justine. Thank you. It's great to have you. I'd like to go back to the beginning and, and ask you, how did you discover this concept of hardwiring for happiness? Well, it's the basic idea that the brain is constantly changing its structure, for better or worse. And it also has a bias, unfortunately, for changing for the worse, because that's what our ancestors needed to be able to do to survive in really harsh conditions. That's the brain's negativity bias. On the other hand, in terms of the brain changing for the better, that's really the basis of growing any good thing you want to have inside yourself. For example, if a person would like to become happier or more loving or more resilient or more patient, more compassionate, more committed to their own sobriety, uh, to have more of a wholesome perspective on life altogether, whatever that is, let's call those inner strengths in general. Those inner strengths are based in brain structure. And we develop more inner strengths, including let's say a more positive mood and less anxiety or depression. We develop those inner strengths by gradually changing our brain for the better bit by bit over time. So what I've gotten very interested in is the exact how of doing that, the fundamental how 
of spiritual growth and of spiritual growth as well as psychological growth and healing and everyday effectiveness. And what I've seen is that we tend to be very good at uh, activating a momentarily positive state of mind, a useful thought, a, a good feeling, a strong sensation in the body of vitality, what have you, or relaxation. We're good at activating fleeting, fleeting mental states, but we're relatively poor at installing those fleeting mental states into lasting neural structures, the fundamental positive traits that are the inner strengths that we'd all ought to have. So to sum up here, what my book's about and my work's about these days is teaching people how to use everyday positive experiences 10 or 20 seconds at a time to, in effect, trick the brain to turn those positive moments into some kind of lasting benefit inside oneself rather than simply wasting them, which is the brain's default setting. Rick, I want to go back for a personal story of yours when you first really started to think about this, because you tell a story about being in college and what your life was like. And when you first discovered this, how to concentrate or or to really enhance those positive moments, it was something very small. Oh, sure. The, the simple example for me is that, um, like many people in childhood, it wasn't a horrible childhood, but it was far from a great one. And one of the features of it was that I was extremely young going through school because I have a very, very late birthday, and I also skipped a grade. So that combined with my sort of anxious, nerdy, dorky temperament, you know, skinny guy with glasses, uh, led to many, many experiences of feeling left out, unwanted, put down, dismissed, devalued, et cetera. Not horrible, but nonetheless consequential because, you know, effects, uh, causes have effects. So the net of it is that I entered into college with what felt like a big hole in my heart. Uh, the normal supplies that we all need of feeling included and seen and wanted were for me more like a thin soup. Then in college, I discovered something really pretty remarkable. I discovered that first, if I noticed good facts of everyday moments of being included or wanted or valued. And then second, I allowed those good facts to become a good experience. And then most important of all, if I took a dozen seconds or so to turn those good experiences of feeling cared about, feeling liked, a girl smiling at me, some guys inviting me to go get some pizza, our manly stud quarterback on our intramural football team throwing me the ball finally, any moment like that was an opportunity to actually feel it and stay with it. And I noticed that when I stayed with it 10, 20 seconds straight, I let it come into my body. I, I moved out of it simply being a concept or an idea to really feel it in the body. I helped it grow in my mind. That if I did that, it felt like I was feeding my soul in some fundamental way. And bit by bit, drop by drop, my experience was that I really started to internalize the supplies that had been more like a thin soup when I had been growing up. Any single time I did this did not change my life. But on the whole, this gradual process of what I call taking in the good really did grow inside me the things that I'd always longed for. Now then, 20, 30 years later, fast forward, I began to realize as a psychologist and then a neuropsychologist that I'd actually been 
uh, systematically changing my brain for the better. That, in effect, in the two-stage process of any kind of learning, including personal growth learning or moral development or character education or healing from trauma or cultivating the upper reaches of human potential, that learning process, neurologically speaking, takes two stages. We first have to activate some kind of mental state, a thought, perception, emotion, desire, or enactment. We have to activate a state. And then most importantly, we have to install that state in the brain. Otherwise, it's momentarily pleasant, better than a stick in the eye, but it has no lasting value. And that fact right there speaks to the fundamental weakness of most psychotherapies. And I speak as a longtime therapist. I'm talking about myself now, as well as the weakness in most mindfulness training. Here too, I speak as a longtime meditation teacher and weakness in coaching character education for children, human resources development, et cetera. The weakness being that we tend to be very good at activating useful mental states, but relatively poor at installing them in the brain as anything with lasting value. You know, you what you point out in your experience, and you've written about this, our day is filled mostly with either neutral experiences or positive ones. I mean, much more so than negative ones, but what we tend to do at the end of the day is remember that one thing that didn't go so well. And this is what you call that that bias that our, our brain has. Uh, what is that negative bias? What Right. Uh, you're talking about uh, what scientists call the negativity bias of the brain, uh, which I kind of summarize in a simple way as the brain is like Velcro for the bad, but Teflon for the good. In other words, the brain is very good and efficient at converting momentary negative states to lasting negative neural traits. But the brain is relatively poor at turning positive mental states into positive neural traits. In other words, the fundamental basis for the inner strengths broadly defined, including happiness or love or, or inner peace, that we all want to develop in ourselves. And the reason the brain evolved that is because our ancestors needed to really um, live to see the sunrise. The rule one in the wild is eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. So in effect, they had to both get carrots and avoid sticks. But if you don't get a carrot today, you'll have a chance of one tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid that stick, Whap, no more carrots forever. So there are many examples of the negativity bias in daily life. You just gave one. You know, many, many things happen in a day, um, and we tend to remember the bad news. Research shows that the brain will activate more to an unpleasant sound than to an equally loud, pleasant one. Uh, we tend to remember bad information about a person longer than good information. Thus, and is this why uh, we have, like, uh, in campaigns, political campaigns, yeah. you have the negative ads? Precisely. Yeah, that's why. Um uh, in relationships, negative interactions tend to have much more impact than positive ones. That's why research shows that long-lasting, uh, happy couples need at least a five-to-one relationship of positive to negative interactions. That's a cautionary tale, just to think about the last day or week you know, with your partner. Um, also, it's really easy to train people in a sense of helplessness, futility, and defeat, which has lots of implications politically. In other words, it's very easy in just a few experiences of inescapable pain to teach people that there's nothing they can do about their fate. They've, but yeah. many other counterexamples are needed, many times as many counterexamples are needed to help a person realize, you know, in my life I can be a hammer instead of a nail. Now, Rick, this this isn't just 
positive thinking that you're talking about. This is something else. You talk about you you need to take the time to first, let's say, antidote a negative, something that's maybe you're worried. And so you might want to antidote that with, let's say, saying, okay, I'm good right now, or remember some really nice thing in your life. When I when I went through the book and did some exercises, I found when I'm in the midst of worry or fear, it's hard for me to recall something good. Right. Okay, we're talking about a couple of things here. So first of all, um, when in the course of a day, half a dozen or a dozen times over the course of a day, there is the opportunity for a good experience, usually because you notice one you're already having. In other words, you feel satisfied that you finished the laundry, let's say, or there's a nice warm feeling with your pet or a friend, or uh, you go outside, you go for a walk, and there's a little bit of gratitude about being alive and the beautiful day you're in the middle of. Um, or alternately, you might deliberately create a positive experience in some authentic way. You might think of something you feel grateful for, or perhaps you might call to mind someone who loves you, or you might deliberately cultivate some compassion or loving kindness. Whatever it is you do, one way or another, you're having a positive experience. Then the question is, what are you going to do with it? It's activated. It's happening, right? But Remember that the process of learning and growth is a two-stage process. We also need to install this experience, not just simply have it. And that's where I think we tend to waste opportunities. We waste opportunities to have positive experiences. And then in particular, we waste opportunities to turn them into something of lasting value. But over time, as we do that, we both feel better in general. And as you're getting at, we become more resourced inside in order to deal with the difficult things as well. And maybe in a little bit, we can also talk about what to do in the moment when something difficult, some fear, some sadness has arisen in your mind. I'm here with Rick Hansen, Dr. Rick Hansen. He's the author of Hardwiring Happiness, The New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen. He's the author of Hardwiring Happiness, The New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence. And if you'd like to know more about his work and his uh, e-newsletter, just one thing, you can go to his website, rickhanson.net. That's rickhanson, H-A-N-S-O-N.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Rick, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, 
how it, it seems you're describing seemingly a very small practice, but you're saying it can make a big difference. So how, how does that work? It is a deceptively simple practice. In other words, we all know how to take in the good. We've all had the experience of being at a, in a situation, uh, enjoying a good meal with friends or um, having a particular time out under the stars, or maybe a friend says something to us and we think to ourselves, this is a keeper, okay? On the other hand, for all the ways in which we all know how to take in the good, why is it that so many people living in relative luxury, particularly compared to people who've lived in the past, still feel so driven, so restless, so lonely, so dissatisfied, so discontented. Why is that? I think it's because we are having one relatively mildly pleasant experience after another, punctuated with some neutral ones, with the occasional negative one. But we're not enabling those positive experiences to actually sink in so that we can grow internally an unconditional felt sense of an underlying peacefulness, contentment, and love. And also, because we're not growing these resources inside, we're a lot uh, weaker or less able to deal with challenges when they actually finally come. So what this deceptively simple practice gives people an opportunity to do in the middle of a busy life to take those opportunities, to harvest them a dozen or so times a day, 30 seconds or less at a time, so that there can be a a felt sense inside of this growing quality of inner peace, inner strength, and inner love. And I think that's particularly important for two kinds of purposes. One, or three really, one, everyday well-being and effectiveness. Two, healing people's issues with anxiety, trauma, loss, despair, or building up resources inside, in fact, to deal with uh, ongoing challenges in a person's life. And then in a larger, more ultimate sense, through gradually internalizing these experiences of our core needs actually being met, we work with the brain's ancient tendencies to tip into either the green zone or the red zone, in effect. And we help ourselves increasingly, unconditionally stay centered in the green zone without the basis for any underlying sense of deficit or disturbance that would drive the resisting of what's unpleasant or the grasping after what's pleasant or the clinging to what's heartfelt, that is the fundamental basis of craving, which as the ancient teachers have shown, is a very, very powerful force in suffering and harm. Now you went through the green zone really fast. If you can explain that a little, little, go unpack it a little more uh sure. like you know, green zone is is that place that's responsive rather than mm-hmm. reactive right mm-hmm. and so say say something more about mm-hmm. the green zone and what that is in the brain sure so to kind of summarize 600 million years of evolution of the nervous system what a long strange trip it's been uh essentially the brain evolved in three stages to simplify a bit kind of like building a house from the bottom up, all right? There's the brainstem reptilian stage. Then there's the second floor of the house, the subcortex, some people call it the limbic system, the mammalian stage. And then on top of that uh, is the cortex, the more modern primate and especially human brain, all right? It's a little bit as if inside each one of us is a little lizard, a little mouse, and a little monkey, 
All right. So as the brain evolved in those three stages, so did its capacities to meet our three fundamental needs, the needs of any animal, including a big complicated one like a human being, our three needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection, which are loosely linked to the reptile, mammal, and primate human stages of evolution. Okay, so what the brain needs to do? Just so the 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 safety is the, the reptilian brain. What's the middle one? Satisfaction. Satisfaction is the mammal brain. The Reward mouse brain. Seeking. Yeah, that's right. And connection is more like the little inner monkey. Now, obviously, reptiles need to get rewards like food and mating. And obviously they also need to connect in some basic way with other members of their species. But on the whole, you can loosely link as a metaphor, if nothing else, these three needs, safety, satisfaction, and connection to the inner mouse, pardon me, the inner lizard, the inner mouse, and the inner monkey. Okay. So what the brain does then to manage these needs, it has these three overarching motivational regulatory systems that avoid harms to promote safety that approach rewards to um, attain satisfaction and to attach to others to meet our needs for connection. Okay, so what we have then is we have these three fundamental needs and these three fundamental systems that go about meeting the needs. And what the brain has is two settings, two ways of going about meeting these needs. So if there's a basic sense of safety, satisfaction, and connection. Not a perfect world, but a kind of a felt sense of you're not being immediately attacked or threatened right now in terms of safety, a felt sense of enough air to breathe, enough food to eat, uh, enough resources in your life in terms of needs for satisfaction, and also a basic sense of being liked or part of a group, you know, not immediately mistreated by somebody else. Okay, the brain defaults to its resting state. I'm addressing the fundamental question of what is human nature. Our resting state in terms of the brain and the body altogether is its responsive mode. I call it the green zone, where we go when there's a strong felt sense of safety, satisfaction, and connection. In this state, the body repairs and refuels itself. It recovers from bursts of stress. And in three broad umbrella terms, related to avoiding, approaching, and attaching, the brain is colored, the mind is colored with a sense broadly of peace, contentment, and love. That's good news. It's not enlightenment, but it's a very good basis for everyday well-being and effectiveness. It's a good basis for healing old pain, and it's a very good basis for self-actualization and spiritual practice. Okay. And the other side of the story, though, is that the brain has a second setting. It's reactive mode, it's red zone, it's that it goes into fight, flight, or freeze when there is a felt sense of one or more of our three core needs not being met. In other words, when we don't feel safe or satisfied or connected, then the brain goes into its different setting, its red zone reactive mode, in which the body fires up to uh, deal with immediate survival challenges. Resources are burned, bodily systems are disturbed, long-term projects like strengthening the immune system are put on hold. And in three broad terms, in reference to avoiding, approaching, and attaching, the mind is colored with a sense of fear, frustration, and heartache. We have both of these capacities as human animals. We have these three fundamental needs and two ways to go about meeting them. The only question is, which zone are we in? Mother Nature's plan is for us to spend as little time as necessary in the red zone. It feels bad to be upset or stressed 
or fearful or frustrated or to feel lonely or abandoned or mistreated. It feels bad uh, because, or to freeze, to avoid a, you know, some kind of threat. It feels bad because it's bad for the body. It's bad for passing on genes. It's momentarily useful maybe to get our ancestors away from that charging lion, but it's not a prescription for long-term health and well-being, let alone passing on genes. Mother Nature wants us to get out of the red zone really quickly and to spend most of our time in the green zone, where basically we're kind of hanging out, we feel basically okay, and we're not burning resources, and it's the best strategy for passing on genes, let alone uh, feeling happy and taking care of other people. Well, then, Rick, then why do we need, if that's our, our basic one, that green zone in nature really supports that, why are we uh, needing to in, install some good responses to what's going on? Why? Why are, are we mostly in this negative thing? What? What's? I don't understand. Modern life is really good for the brain in some ways, and it's really bad for the brain in other ways. In other words, modern life tends to keep us out of severe red zone moments, although it's unfortunately not true for many people worldwide, obviously. But generally speaking, especially in the developed world, most minutes of most people's lives, they're not running and screaming terror from a lion that's attacking. All right. That's the good news. The bad news is that modern life uh, puts most people in a state of chronic mild to moderate stress. Call it the pink zone. Okay. <laughs> right? All right. And There's then, a third zone. Okay. Well, pink no, it's, zone. I'll yeah. call it the red zone, but it's mild yeah. to moderate okay. chronic stress. Right. And, with, and with very little opportunity to recover from stress. And when people in the modern world tend to go into their green zone recovery phase, they tend to do it in ways that are not good for them. They overeat, they overshop, they overmedicate with drugs and alcohol, mindless media, et cetera. And then they go back to work the next day for their 12, 14 hour day, if you count the commute, back in the red zone. So the fundamental prescription, I think, for deep health that takes into account our evolutionary neuropsychology is to spend as little time as possible in the red zone, right? If you need to go there to deal with an, an emergency or a tough time at work or just coming through for somebody in your life and you need to surge resources to do that, so be it. But on the whole, the prescription is to spend as much time as possible in the green zone and not just waste green zone experiences, right? Responsive states are the basis for responsive traits. But if we don't install those responsive states, those everyday experiences in broad terms of peace, contentment, and love, they're wasted on the brain. They, they're momentarily pleasant, but they don't build up our capacity to deal with life from the green zone. Well, I can think of an example. Let's say somebody gives us a compliment. Mm -hmm. So often we dismiss it. Mm -hmm. We we don't, I mean, we kind of hear the words, but we don't really take it in. So what you're suggesting is if that happens in our life, if somebody says, oh, gosh, you really look great today, uh, it, it, that we stop and take it in. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. In other words, when you have the opportunity to have a positive experience, especially one in which your 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 felt sense of deep needs met is the, is present. You know, there's a basic sense of safety. You're helping the scared little critter of the body. We're all a bunch of scared monkeys. You're helping this little animal feel basically safe. Okay. You're also helping it feel like there's enough. There's enough. There's enough in the face of so many messages in our culture that there's never enough. 
Stay thirsty, my friends, and always keep striving for more. And you're helping yourself really register the sense of, hey, I am included. You know, I am liked. I am loved. It's not a perfect world, but there really is a lot for me here. It's actually deceptive. It's actually remarkably hard to sustain these kind of positive experiences. It's easy to dismiss this practice as trivial. It's actually deeply profound because in a fundamental sense, if you think about it, by re- repeatedly internalizing these experiences, we both stand up, stand up against very powerful cultural forces that want to make us afraid of other people and also driven endlessly into consumerism. And in a very deep sense, if you're playing off the Buddhism and the third and second noble truths, we're actually learning to help ourselves increasingly engage life, not on the basis of the craving that leads to suffering and harm. I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen. He's the author of Hardwiring Happiness, the New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen. He's the author of Hardwiring Happiness, The New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence. And if you want to know more about his work and his newsletter and all all of his appearances and talks, you can go to his website, rickhansen.net. That's rickhansen, H-A-N-S-O-N.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Rick, you use a, an acronym HEAL to, to help us remember the, the process that you've developed through years and years of doing psychotherapy, years of working on yourself and, uh, and others. So um, let's talk about HEAL. What, what does that stand for? Sure. Um, so now what we're talking about is how to do this, right? So far, we've been talking about why to do it, right? Including why build up the neural substrates of the green zone, the responsive mode inside yourself, so that you can increasingly deal with challenges in life from, as it were, a responsive place, a green zone place, rather than going red, as it were, when someone cuts you off in traffic or someone gives you that look across a dinner table or doesn't call you back soon enough. Instead of going into the red zone, by Building up these neural substrates through repeatedly taking the good little moments in everyday life of feeling basically safe, satisfied, and connected, we can build up our inner strengths so that when challenges come, we can stay in the responsive mode about them. Okay, so that's the why of it. Now we're talking about the how of it. In terms of that how, what I've done is simply taken the hundreds of studies really on the fundamental neuropsychology of personal growth and learning and turned it into a very simple little step-by-step process. So, and let's also remember that the process of learning, the process of changing from the inside out, spiritually, psychologically, in practical terms, what have you, is this two-stage process that moves from an activated mental state into an installed neural trait. And let's remember that without that installation, there's no lasting value. 
Okay. So the HEAL process just summarizes that overall matter of learning in terms of H for have. Have a positive experience. Have it in the first place, uh, either because you notice it or because you deliberately create it. Before we leave that one, the, the big trick in my mind and in my experience is to notice it. Great. To actually stop and actually notice it and not dismiss it. Well, um, I think you're exactly right. Noticing the good facts that surround us um, is a wonderful thing to do. And it's hard for people to do that when they're rushing about. That's why mindfulness training is helpful. It also helps to be on your own side. That's so fundamental to be kind to yourself, to be a friend to yourself. And to realize that in this life, we tend to be very pushed around by external forces or by our reactions to them, as well as pushed around by the internalized legacy, if you will, of the people we grew up with or have been in previous relationships with and so forth. So if you really want to help yourself, you can actually take charge more of the structure building processes in your brain by deliberately looking for those good facts, just like you're saying. And then also, very important, let yourself have that experience. As you said earlier, Justine, someone might pay you a compliment, but do you feel it? You look outside, you notice the flowers, you look around the room, you go, oh, light switches, flush toilets, uh, no bombs are dropping on my village today. But do we feel anything as a result? You notice that someone has smiled at you. Do you feel anything? You notice that something you worried about didn't happen. Do you feel anything? The opportunity instead is to let yourself have an experience that's appropriate and proportionate and authentic to what has actually happened, right? So now you're having that experience. That's the good news. Even better news is to help that experience sink into you by really, in the second step of the HEAL process, E for enrich, really savoring it, drawing upon one or more of the five well-known factors in the neuropsychology of learning that really build neural structure, notably uh, under-enriching uh, duration, helping it last 10, 20 seconds, protecting it, not being distracted, not letting those negative voices in your head overwhelm it, staying with the felt sense, let's say, of being cared about by somebody or accomplishing something or feeling protected. Second major factor of enriching is intensity. Help it grow. Let the experience be as powerful as possible. Even if it's subtle, like tranquility or gratitude, it can pervade your mind and be, in effect, intense, therefore. Third factor, multimodality, under-enriching, is to feel it in your body. The more senses you bring to bear, the more there will be a neural trace. As any good school teacher knows, the more that the kids are really involved in its experiential learning, the more that it's going to sink in. You can even do little things with your body, like sitting up a little straighter to build up the feeling of determination uh, or soften your face to encourage the experience of compassion. All right. Fourth factor under enriching is novelty. Look for things that are fresh or new in the experience as if you're approaching it with the eyes of a child or as they say in Zen, beginner's mind, Zen mind. And then last under enriching, um, Personal relevance. Why would it matter to me, for example, to really register my commitment to my sobriety? Or why would it really matter to me to take in this felt sense, maybe because I'm a college freshman who has a hole in his heart, that other people like me? They really like me. Who knew? Why would this matter to me? Any one of these five things will help it sink in. Okay. And then you can also strengthen the installation process with A for absorb. In other words, by 
intending and sensing that the experience is going into you, you will prime memory systems and sensitize them so they will be more efficient at turning this passing mental state into some kind of lasting neural structure. These are the three standard steps of uh, the essence of taking in the good. H for have, E for enrich, A for absorb. It's a little bit like using the metaphor of a fire. In the first step, lighting the fire, so now you have it. In the second step, adding fuel to the fire to keep it going, so you're enriching the fire. And then in the third step, ah, warming yourself at the fire as you absorb its heat into yourself, all right? And then if you want to, there's the fourth step, the optional one, in which, if it's appropriate, you can link this positive experience that you've cultivated there for five or 10 or 20 seconds, you can link this positive experience in your awareness with some related negative material so that the positive experience, such as feeling cared about, gradually associates with the negative material, let's say feeling lonely as a child or bullied or, or abandoned in a relationship or something. And the positive material will gradually soothe and ease and even eventually replace the negative material. So that's the outline overall. H for have, E for enrich, A for absorb, and then optionally L for link. Or if I were to really summarize it all, four words. Have it, enjoy it, especially enjoy it, because that's what will install it in your brain. Or to really summarize it in just two words, mo better. In other words, <laughs> more times each day, more little episodes, 10, 30 seconds at a time of taking in the good, of internalizing a useful experience for yourself. And then inside episodes, mo better, really, really letting it sink in. There's a famous saying in neurons, neuroscience, um, neurons that fire together wire together. To really boil this practice down, the more you get those neurons firing together and the more often they fire and the more intensely they fire, the better they're going to be at wiring those resources into the core of your being. I was just going to ask you that because I, I know that that saying, those neurons that fire together, wire together. So where you're talking about actually changing the synapses of your brain is that am I absolutely correct? that's right any kind of learning including whether it's a child learning to walk or an adult learning to feel more uh, compassionate and forgiving and loving toward other people or any other kind of learning altogether like learning how to navigate a tricky conversation more skillfully whether it's at work or at home any kind of learning must involve a change in neural structure Otherwise, we're left with merely supernatural explanations. So it's understood whether it's lizards, mice, monkeys, or humans, there must be change in the brain if there's any kind of learning. So definitely, if people use this practice, and we've recently done a study on a course I created on taking the good with collaborators from the University of California, and we've shown that through taking the course, including uh, compared people randomly assigned to a weightless control group, that people who routinely practice taking the taking in the good, um, feel less anxious and depressed. And they also feel more satisfied with life, more grateful. They develop more self-control. They feel happier in general. They have more of a sense of love and compassion for other people as well. We've shown that those results actually happen. And so therefore, if we're getting those kind of results, we must be changing the brain as well. And new technologies are also showing in general not specific to taking the good because it's a new method and it's not gotten any kind of MRI research yet. I would predict that over time though. But other kinds of research show 
that when people do inner practices of various kinds, gratitude practices, compassion practices, mindfulness practices, forgiveness practices, any kind of sustained mental activity, particularly with a sense of embodiment and intensity, is going to leave a neural trace. Neurons that fire together wire together for better or worse. I'm talking about taking... um, control over and compensating for the brain's tendency to be very good at learning from bad experiences, but relatively bad at learning from good ones. Don't you have to do more good experiences, more of those on than bad ones to, to, to actually be effective? Yeah, that's exactly right. In other words, the lives of most people, especially uh, in those settings that have relatively decent conditions. I'm not talking about the, as it were, what a terrible phrase, the bottom billion in the world. But that said, studies show that generally speaking, many, many people are having a lot of mild but frequent positive experiences. That's nice. So in effect, pleasant experiences, uh, they have kind of a quantity effect. On the other hand, alas, negative experiences have a kind of quality effect. In other words, negative experiences, kaboom, are rapidly converted into neural structure. Once burned, twice shy. Never forget. Because that's what our ancestors needed to learn from. So that's what we're trying to compensate for. That's right. So for me, the, the combination here is to not go negative on negative. We're not trying to fight what's negative because then you just get more negative. All right. Um, what we're what I'm trying to talk about is the essence of cultivation. In other words, if we're trying to cultivate more patience, more happiness, more insight, more steadiness of mind for meditation, if we're trying to cultivate more um, sense of resources inside so we can continue uh, to pursue social justice, if we're simply trying to cultivate more uh, sense of um, compassion for a child with special needs or uh, more uh, capacity to be strong and assertive with our partner, whatever it is. We're cultivating it. And it's so interesting that in the fields of personal growth, which I've been involved in for 35 years, nobody talks much about cultivation. We tend to talk about activation. We talk about various states of mind, looking on the bright side, positive thinking, right? Uh, seeing things to be grateful for, having a moment of happiness. We're pretty good at that, right? We're talking about like affirmations? Affirmations, yeah. sure. Yeah. We're good at activation. But w- the reason that, Here's a little thing to know. Um, Bottom line, research on psychotherapy, just to use one example of a way to train the mind for the better, psychotherapy is a powerful intervention. It's really good. I'm proud of it. That said, in 30 years of research on psychotherapy, 30 years of development, there's no average improvement in outcome. Why is that? I think it's because we've gotten a lot better as therapists at activating positive states, but no better at installing them in the brain. I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen. He's the author of Hardwiring Happiness, The New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen. He's the author of Hardwiring Happiness, The New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence. And Rick, you were saying how psychotherapy is not so good at cultivation. They're good at activation. And you've said a little bit about that. Is there more that you could share with us? Yeah, let me nuance that a little bit. So uh, just to repeat, uh, psychotherapy is a very profound and powerful intervention. Uh, It doesn't always work, et cetera, but the research on it on, on the whole is really robust. That said, What's also very interesting is that over the last 30 years, there have been new developments developments in the world of psychotherapy, as well as new developments in other paths of personal growth, except if you compare the average outcome today to the average outcome roughly 30 years ago, it's still about the same. It's a little bit like the example of putting hundreds of billions of dollars into cancer research around a particular cancer, and the cure rate is no better today than it was back then. So it really raises the question as to why. And I want to be, again, be very clear. I'm not critiquing psychotherapy. I'm proud of being a psychotherapist. I think the takeaway is uh, humbling because if we don't really help these momentary positive mental states to actually register in brain structure, they don't have lasting value. Or their conversion from momentary passing state to lasting neural trait is very, very low. Now, I think there are some exceptions to this general rule. I think there are some therapists who, by their nature, are intuitively very gifted at the installation phase of learning. I also think there's some therapies that tend to be particularly good at installation. These are the more experiential ones like EMDR or trauma treatments or focusing uh, or some of the new therapies that, that are very you know, somatically oriented. But on the whole, I think where the opportunity is in our field, and by our field, I mean broadly, coaching, mindfulness training, human resources development, character education for children, recovery work, Etc. I think where the opportunities really live for our field is in two parts. Number one, getting better at installation, because we're already really good at activation, all right? Where the opportunity is, is to get better at helping our clients and doing you know, things with our clients or our students that really help uh, the good learnings land. The other opportunity, I think, increasingly, is to look for targeted key resource experiences that are the natural antidotes based on the evolution of the brain, to our pain and suffering. For example, in terms of my model of the inner lizard, mouse, and monkey, if you think of issues relating to the safety system, which are managed by the, the, the avoiding harms, those issues such as fear or anger or helplessness are best served by those experiences that make us feel like we are indeed avoiding a harm, such as a sense of relaxing or noticing that actually in this moment, you're truly all right right now, or recognizing protections around you and feeling protected or having more of a sense of strength inside. Those are the natural antidotes to issues in the safety system. If, for example, on the other hand, a person were to feel grateful, that's great. That helps approach rewards, but it's not gonna address the safety need. Or to use your example earlier, Justine, if you're at work and someone says, my, you look really nice today, that's great. Better than a you know a thump on the head, right? But it's an experience in the attaching system. It helps us feel more connected to others to get that kind of compliment from someone at work. It doesn't meet our need in the safety system. It's a little bit like if you have scurvy. You need vitamin C. If you have anemia, you need iron. 
I spent a lot of time uh, as a young adult taking iron for my scurvy. You know, my scurvy was, as it were, in terms of the attaching system. I needed to have healthy supplies where I felt loved and seen and cared about. Um, I took a lot of iron by accomplishing things, which was great, but it didn't meet my fundamental need for social supplies. So I think people can, in everyday life, look for those key resource experiences that would fundamentally meet their needs. So you're saying that that we need to to do it in all three segments of our lives in in um, safety, needing to be safe, in needing to be satisfied, and needing connection. You can't just work on one; you have to work on all three. Is what are true, you saying? True in two parts, and briefly here. The first part of what's true is that we have all three needs which metaphorically could be summarized as the inner lizard, mouse, and monkey. And it's important to repeatedly cultivate the felt sense of those core needs met, which gradually undoes the ancient tendencies toward resisting what's unpleasant, grasping after what's pleasant, and clinging to what's heartfelt, which in a word is craving, broadly defined, based on an underlying sense of deficit and disturbance that you know drives us into suffering and harm. Okay, so we need to take care of all three needs. We need to take care of the whole inner zoo, the lizard, the mouse, and the monkey. But if I could, most people have an issue or a leading issue right now or a lingering issue that's staying with them, an issue that sits in just one of those three systems. All right, maybe someone has issues around anxiety or anger or a sense of helplessness, or perhaps their issues are more in the territory of the approaching reward system, not the avoiding harm system. Their issues are more around frustration or disappointment or loss or a sense of being thwarted or like they can't attain important goals. Or perhaps, as in my case, going into college, their issues are more in the connection system, the attaching to others system, and they've got issues of feeling lonely or mistreated or devalued, or not being able to get the kind of love that they really want in their life. So, Rick, are you saying that it would be good when when you have some negative experience or something's happening, you're in worry or you're in um, disappointment or sadness or whatever it is, that it's good to know which one it's related to, whether it's related to safety, whether it's related to satisfaction or to connection, and then you can find an antidote in that particular section? That yes, particular that's a great way to put it. For example, a person listening right now might, you know, just four questions in a row quickly. First question is, what's the issue? So try to identify it and move from the issue being outside oneself in terms of one's situation or circumstance or environment, right, which really certainly matters. But the real question psychologically is, What's what's it feel like inside, right? What's where's the suffering? All right. So what's the issue? Second question is the most important of all. What if it were more present inside me would really help with this issue? In other words, what as an inner strength or a positive trait that I had cultivated inside me would really help me with this issue? And a very nice roadmap, I think, that gets at that second question is this little model of our three fundamental needs, safety, satisfaction, and connection, managed by avoiding harms, approaching rewards, and attaching to others. So you can ask yourself, what is it that if I had more inside me would really help? And then that then naturally takes you to the third question, which is, how could I have more experiences of that inner resource? Because we become more mindful through having many, many experiences of mindfulness. We become more compassionate broadly 
by having many experiences of compassion. In other words, we grow traits by experiencing them as states. Traits, the inner strengths we all care about, come from states. The problem is, as I've said, the brain is inefficient at turning positive states into positive traits, but by taking in the good a dozen seconds at a time, mo better, enjoy it after you have it, then you can turn positive states into positive traits. And you can then, in daily life, look for opportunities to take your vitamin C. Mm -hmm. What's your special medicine these days? What's the what are the antidote experiences that would really make the most difference for you these days? I just want to I just want to say for when you safety you associate that with avoiding harm. Correct. And with satisfaction you associate that with approaching rewards. And for connection that's attaching to others. Correct. Cuz you went through that really really fast, yes. but you have those are the the three, you know, avoiding harm, approaching rewards, and connecting with others. That's exactly so, right. And then you have a whole list of antidotes uh, in in your book of of different different strengths that we can cultivate. Um, you know, this is so magnificent. I want to go on and on, but we we really need to. Is there anything that you want to say that? helps us wrap this up and install it. <laughs> oh, sure. Well, you know, there's a joke that in like a gym, you know, what's the most important exercise to do? It's the one you'll actually do. In other words, for all the complexity of this, Justine, it really boils down to a simple truth, which is that um, life is this extraordinary opportunity, even a very difficult life, for little moments here and there, right under our nose usually, to turn a good fact into a good experience, and then in particular, take it in. Give it to yourself. Have the kindness to let it land in your being. So gradually over time, you in effect grow flowers in the garden of your own mind. So you have more resources inside yourself for your own everyday healing and everyday effectiveness and well-being as well as healing. And you're more able to, to stay green, right? When the oatmeal really starts to fly. Also, as you gradually do this inside, you, you undo the general causes of craving, right? So you're less driven in that way. And in terms of dealing with the world at large, you're less easily manipulated by the very powerful forces of fear and greed, which you know many people use these days. The net of it for me boils down to this Tibetan saying, what's the most you know, important minute of your life? It's the next one. In other words, minute after minute after minute. If you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves, right? So the question is, what are we gonna do with what's present in the most important minute of our life? The next one, minute after minute after minute. What will we do with the good that's available in it? Will we just let it flow through our mind like water through a sieve while what's bad in the moment is caught every time? Or will we actually really, 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 really let it sink in? I mean, I summarize this whole business with this, for me, great saying from the Buddha. He said, think not lightly of good, saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one gathering it little by little fills oneself with good. Rick, thank you so much for being with us today. I've been speaking with Dr. Rick Hansen. He's the author of Hardwiring Happiness, The New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence. If you want to know more about his work, go to his website, rickhanson.net, rickhanson.net, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. 
I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3489. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.